0: And welcome to Caged In Presents Coppola Connections Brought to you by the Breadcrumbs Collective And hosted by me, Petros Syllabus. On today's episode, we will be looking at Free Kings, released in 1999, baby <laughs> If you're new to the podcast, what we do here is we watch every single film In the collective Coppola filmography To determine does this film state a case for them to be the greatest film family of all time to join me to talk about this one and help me answer that question is a fantastic podcast host interviewer and just pretty pretty much a bit of a legend Lee Hutchison of the filibuster podcast as well as the nerd parties A24 all project as uh, we get into some some great overlap between A24 and the Coppola family and all types of other greatness. Uh, me and Lee also had a little chat about Nicolas Cage which you can find over on patreon.com forward slash caged in pod if you are so inclined. As always we will be talking about this film in all of its gory inside your body what a bullet wound detail so yeah there's spoilers spoilers are plenty so with all of that out of the way all that's left to do is to pull a map out of a man's ass assemble your best team and go on a treasure hunt for some stolen kuwaiti gold as we make some Copula connections <laughs> been said on this podcast before and it will be said again i'm sure that 1999 is argued to be one of the greatest years in film history and that's where we are for this episode today's film stars two ex-rappers one tv heartthrob turned hollywood superstar and a film director directed by one of the biggest babies ever to direct of course those two ex-rappers are ice cube formerly known as um O'Shea Jackson, and Marky Mark Wahlberg. The TV star is George Clooney, and the film director is today's Coppola Connection, Spike Jones, in one of his only acting roles. And the big baby director is, of course, a man known for throwing his toys out of the pram when he doesn't get his own way, David O. Russell. And the film is his satirical Gulf War black comedy, Three Kings. To join me on this mission to see... If this is gold or a fool's errand as military puppets, is runner, podcaster, and one half of the nerd parties, the A24 project, Lee Hutchison. Lee, have you got the power?
1: I've got the power. Yeah, when well, we did like a little test run to make sure I could hear that audio <laughs> earlier on, I could, I immediately just started singing along. Um, so, yeah, I definitely have got the power. Would I sing that as a karaoke song? I'm not so sure, but it's impossible <laughs> not to sing along to that song. Uh,
0: yeah, I, I, I think I would sing the that part. I think when it starts getting into the the rapping, I would I would quickly fall down like dead.
1: I'd probably like mumble a little <laughs> bit until I got back to the chorus. It's yes. one of these sorts of songs. You'd be in the corner just bopping away, and then like, come on, come on, come on, right back on. A fly, oh yeah, safe yeah, ground. yeah, 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 yeah. You
0: got, I got the power, and maybe getting getting with the oh i can do that i can do all that stuff but um yeah um i'm 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 too white and i'm too middle class to be rapping people uh so um let's let's talk what well, i kind of want to talk about before we get into the coppola family i want to talk to you about david o russell are you a david o russell family i would
1: say i kind of like some of his stuff when i i think of it when Probably maybe when I was sort of like a teenager, I really was big in sort of just spending. I worked in a Tesco, I got like a decent monthly wage. So I would buy lots and lots of DVDs. And a DVD that stood out for me when I was kind of making that transition into like hip indie kid was I Heart Huckabees, mm-hmm. um, which is a film I I really loved. But then I've seen kind of things like The Fighter, obviously, in American Hustle, but I've got like huge glaring emissions with like the Silver Linings playbook, Joy. I've not seen much of the, the older work like Accidental Love, When With Disaster, etc. So I had seen Three Kings, but it's a bit of a, st- a a spotty record when it comes to his filmography. You know how like Letterbox shows you how much percentage yeah, of someone's yeah, yeah. work you've seen. Apparently, I've only seen twenty five percent of David O. Russell's work, but I've seen the like the YouTube clips. As- well, so I think I have a kind of broad perspective of <laughs> David O. Russell as a filmmaker and a notorious
0: individual. Well, he's got this kind of, you, you kind of mentioned his filmography and it's got these like like multiple strands to it. He kind of like, I don't know, he has this almost like bro aspect to him with films like Three Kings or like The Fighter almost. And then he kind of has this, I don't know, more soft, gentle, almost like, burgeoning Wes Anderson aspect to him with like kind of Mm -hmm. ensemble pieces like uh, I Heart Huckabees or kind of the 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 quirk of Silver Linings playbook so I think like he's he's a really fascinating director at least right he's kind of got this highly tipped like star-studded I think all it's known as is the untitled David O. Russell project that's kind of coming out in the next year or so that kind of looks insane like who who's in it and stuff like that. And you think of some of people that like you talk about like Wes Anderson, for example. I mean
1: David O. Russell with things like Joy, I think American Hustle fighter i think um or was it silver lining they've all had like oscar and academy award success in a way that not many of his sort of peers have had in terms of like his filmography it's not the biggest in the world but you would say his kind of record is is pretty impressive for for getting talent and actors and um over the finish line i think what christian bale won for american hustle did he or am i thinking of a different film or was that fighter and then obviously i think um What's her name?
0: Jennifer Lawrence. She was nominated as well, I think. Yeah, yeah. He's like, he's got this because I think there is that whole thing of like him, Wes Anderson, and Noah Baumbach were supposed to be like the the new kings of like Hollywood uh, of like New York cinema, kind of making these because they all kind of started off with these very navel gazy like. Talking about one slightly problematic director, to probably the most problematic director uh woody allen was like like everyone was kind of touting david o russell to be like the new woody allen especially with his like screwball comedy that was covered on this podcast flirting with disaster and like i don't know like it it's interesting and i think Free kings is a very interesting one to talk about because it, it kind of feels like that is the sends him on like a different trajectory as a filmmaker because it, lo- it looks completely different to anything that came before it in his filmography at least.
1: Yeah it's one of those things I know you talked about 1999 there and um, it's impossible not to kind of think about like what an incredible year that was for yes. cinema but <laughs> When I think of Three Kings and one of my first ever memories of it because I was far too young to see it in the cinema was that it was one of those sorts of early DVDs. I'm pretty sure I can recall it having one of those Warner Brothers clip cases. (laughs) And then I think I remembered having it when it was sort of, maybe like four years later, it was in one of these sorts of silver prestige DVD kind of cases from Warner Brothers or their premium kind of um, film range. And I always just remember Three Kings as being one of those early DVDs that you could kind of buy on the, the shelves as well.
0: We'll get onto it later, but it's it's a part of the Warner Brothers Essential War Collection DVD. Ah, uh, cool. So, yeah, we'll, we'll we'll get into whether it deserves that place probably near the end. But I find they, they all have this... I don't even have it to hand, but this kind of, yeah, like you said, like a silver outlay around it and kind of like has this, you know, that horrible, like standard military font of like essential war collection. (laughs) Um, So before we, yeah, before we get too deep into looking for gold in this film, um, let's find out some of your Coppola credentials. So when did you first become aware of the Coppola family? And I'm not just talking about uh, it. It probably was a s- specific person, but I'd like to know that specific person. And then when you realize that there was this kind of massive spider's web-like family around them.
1: I think it's one of those ones. I, I would have to ultimately, like, I would have been familiar with, you know, you kind of look at the Coppola family. There's always standout people like get your Jason Schwartzman's, you've got your Francis Ford Coppola's, Spike joness um, Sophia Coppola. Th- these were all people that I was kind of, I'd heard of the names or maybe saw them, but I didn't realize they were this sort of big nepotism slash incredible (laughs) family of of filmmakers and talent that it really blows your mind. I mean, I knew Francis Ford Coppola first. I always think of my sort of dad having the Godfather movies and, you know, being that name was like, it was Francis Ford Coppola's Godfather. It's not just the Godfather. But I think it would have been about 2003 when you hear of Sofia Coppola as sort of doing Lost in Translation. And it was like, oh Sophia Coppola and her producer I think it was produced by her um father as well so you kind of start to oh those two are connected I never kind of realized that (laughs) and then you sort of start to hear about like you think of Lost in Translation it's slightly inspired by her marriage to Spike Jones so there's another connection there and then you sort of start to watch some of the Wes Anderson movies and you realize Jason Schwartzman's attached to it and then you have roman coppola where i think it was his first sort of ever you know the first ever a24 movie people think about the bling ring by sofia coppola or spring breakers but it was a roman coppola movie (laughs) that kickstarted it all as well which no one ever talks about i mean it's a pretty terrible movie but there's all these things that just keeps kind of spawning and spawning out and even things that your podcast you know i've been following it for a while there's episodes i dip into like I didn't realize that was a member of this clan of people or they were married to someone. And then, you know, a behind the scenes magic, I saw this amazing little thing that you'd created where it was like the bloodlines and who was married to who and connections. It was like, i was just looking at it earlier today going, who is that person and how would they achieve that? And I feel like I want to do additional homework now. So I feel like I've known for maybe sort of nearly 20 years about this family. But I think anyone that tells you they knew all about it, apart from maybe yourself, is kind of lying. It is—it's an ongoing experiment, and there's always seems to be breeding going on, or marrying, or third marriages.
0: Yeah, there seems to be like a um, a whole section of the family, and it's—I'm gonna—I'm I'm gonna throw it out there—it's the—it's the side of the family that Nicolas Cage is a part of. Like he's got a lot of like nephews and cousins and brothers and that 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 that. that the act and stuff like that but like it it won't come as a surprise to uh, regular listeners but they're, they're the ones that aren't covered that much because they are the ones very much in like obscurity like you kind of look at their films and they're straight to TV movies or kind of these like low budget horrors and stuff so they kind of have something for everyone and it's, it's really interesting you mentioned Roman Coppola because even when you watch like his first like writing um, role on a Wes Anderson film like watching that back now you realize that adrian brody is essentially playing roman coppola and then like you look at those kind of glasses that he'd like those um sunglasses the sunglasses he wears like the kind of prescription like bifurcals like you know what I mean like very focal or whatever they are like it's like and and yeah it's, it, it's like the whole like francis ford coppola living up to the that he wants to live up to the, the memory of his dad, obviously in this case, Franz Ford Coppola is still alive, but yeah, it's like all of that seeps in and it's, it's all, it's all fantastic. And I don't know it it boggles, it sometimes even boggles my mind that they're all related.
1: Yeah. Exactly, I think so. You know, I, I'm so glad that you're doing this this series on it because it is raising awareness of this huge out of control problem that people, you know, <laughs> it's a problem. But that the coppolas are continuing to infiltrate all levels of Hollywood society, and it shows no sign of stopping. You're doing God's work. You're flat shining a light <laughs> on some very underrated films, some films where you like. I can see how this person got credited uh, to do a sort of film. So yeah, it's it's such an interesting concept of really talented people. And then even someone like Sophia Coppola, fantastic director, but then you sort of see her acting career being kind of started because of maybe that nepotism or being a daughter and kind of failing at it. And mm-hmm. I think that kind of sums up the hit or miss nature if you just looked over these entire broad spectrum of the Coppola family in terms of their hit
0: rate. Yeah. And I feel, well, yeah, even if you look at the kind of patriarch of the family in Francis Ford Coppola, like he's had like, for one of Holly, for, for one of Hollywood's greatest directors, has had a pretty like hit or miss career he kind of like mm-hmm. is known for that 70s run of classics and then like you get like there's still stuff to love in it but like there's there's stuff in there that like and the like personally like he's he he's bankrupted himself he's bankrupted companies he's owned just for these kind of follies and endeavors that he just wants to make the films he wants to make and it's it's kind of beautiful to see and i think he is kind of like the the lightning rod for the whole family that some films can work and some films can't. But um, you mentioned A24 and obviously you host the A24 project. So so through that, there's obviously two, well, three Coppola Mm -hmm. films uh, within that. Um, On that podcast, have you ever had the opportunity to meet a Coppola at all? No, we haven't, but we've
1: been, we've had, maybe four guests on over the years that I've had worked on Bling Ring and Sofia Coppola's most recent film, On the Rocks. And, you know, everyone that's came on, you know, you can't help but ask what's it like to work with Sofia Coppola. And everyone has had so much praise and and love for her as a director. She's often been talked about as quite a a quiet woman, but she's someone that, you know, a lot of the actors work really well with. And, you know, I even had one there, I think it was the lead actress in, in The Bling Ring, where she was like, you know, she even wrote her like a letter of recommendation for going off to to university, and it's always one of those things that can always be a bit of a worry when you have this idea of a director that you mm. think's really good and talented and lovely, and to hear that some of those lovely stories you get from people that have worked on the set with them, you know, whether it might be for a day or in a lead role. So no, we've we've never had a, a couple on. <laughs> we've reviewed their films. We'll we'll always look to have the guests on and try and maybe maybe shine a light on the type of people that they are and and their skill set
0: perfect so um well obviously yeah he's he's tangentially a coppola for the three or four years that he was married to sophia coppola but um what would have been the first film of spike jones's you would have seen would it have been in this one acting role he has or would it have been a film that he directed
1: I think probably the first time I was really probably aware of him would probably happen to be going back to Jackass. Yeah. Um, (laughs) You know, he was, if I'd seen this movie maybe before Jackass, but in terms of knowing who Spike Jones was, it was Jackass. Um, And then sort of filling in the blanks of like, I would watch his filmography, but there's a thing about Spike Jones where as an actor, I look at some of the films he's been in, like he's been in, And Wolf of Wall Street, Moneyball, The Game, other things like that. And the amount of times you're like, he was in those movies. He has something about him where he blends really well into the background of ensemble pieces or things. He's not a memorable face. But when I think of Spike Jones, and I'm sure, you know, the Oscar nominated director or Academy (laughs) Award winning, you know, for all his music and Beastie Boys, all these sorts of things. It, it's jackass. I think of when I think yeah. of Spike Jones, just this guy that looked slightly out of place with these punks and these slightly idiotic kind of characters. Spike Jones just kind of looked like the guy that probably had the money, probably should have known better, but was there all along. So yeah, I think of him for for that, and everything else is oh, Spike Jones did that as well. Oh, Spike Jones is this incredible filmmaker, but he's the jackass guy.
0: There's an amazing um, Vice-like documentary series called Epically Latered, and they uh-huh. look at directors or kind of people who came from the world of skateboarding. So obviously, like that's Spike Jones's background, and yeah, there's like another episode all about like Harmony Corinne and stuff like that. But like mm-hmm. the Spike Jones one is like really fascinating because like he himself, like he doesn't look like it, but he very much is like a kind of like he's 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 punk he's got a very punk ethos in like the way he like directs and stuff like that like there's loads of like uh things in his films like if they need like certain shots he's happy to just jump on a skateboard and carry the camera alongside the actors and stuff like that and like i think it's that opening title sequence to the first jackass with everything like exploding and stuff like that he he did a test run on a girl skate video called Yeah, right, that has like skateboarders doing a very similar thing where they're skateboarding and there's explosions going and there's stories on this documentary of like people's ear eardrums got blown out and stuff like that. Just cause he's like, it's punk. Well, fuck it, let's just try it out. It's gonna be fun. And I kind of like I love the fact that he doesn't look like the kind of guy to do that. He looks like this kind of I don't know. Yeah. Nebbish, like, yeah, very, like, oh, okay, let's let, let's do this. And I think this film's perfect, and kind of, I don't know, showing us that punk side of him almost as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. He's just, you know, I, I think of a lot of the other things that he's done, that we'll probably touch on a little bit more. But yeah, it's it's just one of the things. You almost get the impression he would be like the guy from maybe like a rich family or something like that, where he's hanging out with the kind of. The losers, the freaks, and so mm-hmm. on, and probably annoying his parents in the process. <laughs> and you kind of think about that sort of period of time where, you know, he, he was only married to Sophia Coppola for those few years, but the influence of those th- few years, you know, bring us lost in translation of film people are watching until this day, you know, talking about, which is very much a kind of memoriam on the sort of their relationship yeah. and Spike Jones as a person. And you can almost see that person that would have been in their you know what's he was born in 1969 so it's kind of that probably 30s you know maybe Mm -hmm. a slightly arrested development kind of annoying you know going to all these places in the world because he's quite a privileged and a talented guy and just being dragged along on sort of that ride with someone like that that probably as most thirty-year-olds would probably be like, for better or worse, but <laughs> just distracted by a lot of things, hanging around with other people. Maybe should know better, you know. I, I think he's, you know, especially when you make a film like being John Malkovich in, in 1999, that came out as well. Yeah, you know, he hit the the big time with that and Three Kings in the same year. You know, no wonder he had sort of a, a big head and was distracted by a lot of the the vices that came to him, probably.
0: Yeah, there's um, there's a there's a story that like some of the puppetry needed to be redone on um, being John Malkovich, but mm-hmm. Spike couldn't like, or like had to delay it. Cause he's like, oh, I'm actually in like the Californian desert or over in Mexico filming free yeah. Kings right now. And you kind of look at that. It's like, how can this guy go from directing this quite frankly, bizarre groundbreaking film to kind of like, playing some hillbilly out in out in the mm-hmm. desert just kind of being offensive and crass and to your thing of like we wouldn't have got um lost in translation i i, I always think and it is like i i thank or yeah I, I thank spike jones for the fact that we kind of get a a very like i don't, beautiful is probably not the word but like a great performance from chris pontius in sophia coppola's uh somewhere as uh steven dorf's like best like goofy mate and you can kind of see like i don't know like sophia coppola's filmography like a certain certain aspects of it were lost in translation somewhere on the rocks all feel like these either autobiographical or at least kind of observed um looks at her family and people she knows quite like quite well and like yeah, it kind of feels like that nice, like, I don't know, hangover from that relationship is she's got this yeah. friendship with Chris Pontius.
1: <laughs> I think you make a great point about sort of, especially on the rocks. I remembered when I watched that for the first time and I came away from that thinking, I know what it must be like to be Sophia Coppola and the daughter to someone like Francis Ford Coppola, like this very elite style character that Bill Murray plays that has a lot of influence, you know, can get into all these swanky kind of New York places, you know, this kind of, you almost get the impression going, I, I get what that must be like to be her, or to maybe be embarrassed by having a really famous father and to sort of be in that shadow, I think. Yeah. And, you know, talking to things like even Spike Jones's filmography, what surprised me just doing the research was I almost had it in my head that he'd done more movies like, but he hasn't done a director of film since her, which is we're nearing 10 years since that, mm-hmm. being John Malkovich, adaptation, Where the Wild Things Are. That's it. You know, he's got more writing credits on Jackass movies than directed <laughs> films, which blows my mind when you think of how much of an incredible director he is. And that hit rate, you know, I'm I'm not the biggest fan of Where the Wild Things Are, but those other three are, you know, all degrees of masterpieces.
0: Yeah. And there's like because like I, I recently picked up, I'm not sure if you remember them, but there was that like series of dvds that came out which was like it's called like the collected works or so all the complete works and they're they're just like 90s oh, music video
1: dvds yeah
0: yeah and they like yes. like really thick cases normally double like yeah. dual layer discs and like so there's like a michelle Gondry one chris cunningham yeah. like, i can I'm... see
1: it on a fox shelf right now
0: yeah my mind. <laughs> i recently picked up the spike jones one of those and just kind of like nice. Looking back at like all the kind of like he worked with like icons like do you know I mean? like Daft yeah. Punk, Biggie, um, Fat Boy Slim, and obviously he has that star turn in the "Praise You" video as the yeah. kind of um, I don't know like preacher dance leader and stuff like that. So yeah, he's a he's an amazingly fascinating guy. Oh we
2: shooting?
1: About millions in Kuwaiti bullion. You mean them little cubes you put in hot water to make soup? No, not the little
2: cubes you put in hot water to make soup. I get around,
1: get, around, get around. Stay back! Orders from President
2: Bush! You open that door now. Ah, Where's the gold?
1: Up and down Saddam stole it from the sheets. So I have no problem stealing it from Saddam.
2: Could you inform this gentleman. We need a vehicle of some kind. Cannot take. We definitely take. Many nations, many nations working together.
1: God bless America. Right. God bless the free Iraq. Right. <laughs> Iraq. Uh, now, what do you say, my friend? <laughs>
0: Cannot give car.
1: Okay, I guess we'll buy them. can take you to the Iranian border. Then we don't have a deal. We just saved your life. And we saved yours. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Is, we can help these people and first, and then we'll be on our way. Bush told
2: the people to rise up against Saddam. Now they're getting slaughtered.
0: Warner Brothers presents George Clooney, Mark Wahlberg, and Ice Cube.
2: Honey, it's me. Troy!
0: Oh my god! When are you coming home? Well, I'm working on that right now, baby. So let's talk about your relationship with this film. You kind of alluded to how you how you first saw it, and so yeah, it would have been on DVD, right? In that kind of Warner Brothers clip case. Uh, What were your first impressions when you saw it?
1: it's one of the things I find that it's why I kind of chose the film. I don't really didn't. I part of me was like, did I ever properly finish it? <laughs> did I watch it? Has it been like nearly 20 years since I watched that DVD? And at that time I was just like most young people in the DVD age, just assimilating so much movies and, you know, access to sky movies at the time, like three Kings was just a film to me. um But one that I've always been sort of interested to kind of go back in, especially with the sort of the cast and, you know, liking David O. Russell a, a, a bit more sort of as time's gone on. So I remembered owning it and watching it. And then I think I probably discarded it when I was starting to clear out some of the things that maybe went to a charity shops or a CEX. And um, So when I saw the opportunity to, to pick this one, I thought, I think it'd be interesting to go back into it because even watching it at the time, it maybe came out on DVD, the visual experience of, it, well, the experience of watching that, before sort of a 911 kind of period or a second Gulf War feels incredibly different and the film feels really crazy to go back and watch now. I mean even since I picked the film a couple months ago, you know what's gone on in the Middle East with America has changed again and you almost think of a film like Three Kings, people don't talk perhaps much as much about it as how relevant it is and how much of a critique it is about American foreign policy when you think about the end of Three Kings, you know, people are essentially marching to their doom and people are trying to save them. And the Americans are like, "Now we we can't help them. There's nothing we can do. We've got to go. We've just had something, an experience like that as we watched unfold at sort of um, the airport in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. And people haven't heeded those those lessons. And I think when I picked the film, it was an interesting experience to watch it again and reflect on it. And then watching it in real time as this unfolds in the Middle East was made it all the more richer and quite a an interesting film to discuss, I think.
0: I think what makes it like uh, and especially within the the context of the Copler family is is this kind of like and I, I don't really know if any other kind of um like th- that you know that generation of kind of uh 90s uh well, they've got like a they've got a name I think you obviously got like the Brat Pack from the 70s or whatever like the directors but like that kind so like of the
1: Sundance Kids or
0: something the like Sundance that. Kids yeah like he seems to be the only one who kind of like really harkened back to that generation before where that do you know what I mean like everyone made their uh Vietnam film and it's kind of like David O Russell was the only one to kind of jump on the grenade and go you know what fuck this I'm going to make a Gulf War movie <laughs> like and and like look at like I I I kind of looked through the list of other films that are kind of based on the gulf war and it's not it's not a lot really like there's kind of like nothing really jumps out to me like apart from maybe the the devil's double but that's only because i've seen that or jarhead maybe but this one like seems to seems to be like the i don't know like probably people screaming at me going there's 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 a classic you're missing out but it seems to be like at least like a film that the biggest film of like the cut at least first one to to really shake the shake the shoulders of people and go fuck shit was fucked up
1: yeah i think jarhead almost probably sums up why there's not been too many movies about it in a way i've only watched it once and i think this was this is trying to refresh my opening day memories but it's a thing where it was like war is boring that was like the first war where people when they talk about the gulf war i was too young to really Mm -hmm. you know comprehend it as a thing at the time but it was like bombs being dropped it was something that was being done over tv you know there was very little that the military had to do so that they almost had to find things like something like three kings for example where it's like three guys on a side mission off the books that kind of defy orders um, and they create their own drama or something like jarhead where it's like war is I want to kill myself, I can't stand just mm-hmm. sitting around. And that's probably it's probably that sort of it was over so quickly. And you know, it, it was considered the successful war, and not too much of it. You know, George Bush eventually lost re-election quite quickly after, and we went into sort of that, you know, peace in our time sort of period where people thought we'd reached the, I think the quote is we've reached the end of history where the Cold War was over, the Gulf War was over, like there was we were at peace and stuff like that and you know the gulf war just sort of probably just fell in probably just after that sort of cold war period ended and sort of before that 90s kind of stability within the west and, and the middle east in the, the grand scheme of things
0: yeah well before before i ask you to to give us a synopsis for this film i just kind of want to like um talk about an encounter that david o russell had with uh george w bush obviously okay. uh george bush jr it was at a uh, Warner Brothers exec's house and uh, David O. Russell walked up to Bush and said, hi, I'm editing a film that questions your father's legacy in Iraq. And Bush shot back saying, well, I guess I'm going to have to go back there and finish the job, which kind of re- like <laughs> really feels like David O. Russell could have really warned us a bit more that that, that shit was about to get really hairy
1: i remember i remember hearing that so i think it was like a fundraiser or something because it would have been around the period of uh-huh. of kind of the election campaign beginning etc so yeah I-, I remember hearing that one and um i suppose it's the same with people like trump and you know a lot of other political figures you know boris johnson in the uk we probably all knew these people were dangers and hazards long before they even said something like that and you know, uh, the, the state of affairs of going into to, to Iraq again, it's just, you know, it's just an absolute shame and tragedy, the amount of people that were, were lost innocently and, Definitely. you know, to go under in such pretenses as well. And, you know, it's, I think history is not going to be kind to people like George W. Bush, the second Iraq war. Um, and it surprises you almost how little even films there are about it just now. You get things that allude to it but there's not too many on that second Gulf War, but I think time will, will come to it. And I think it might be something we might just see more written that maybe Hollywood doesn't want to poke that bear too much at the moment, mm-hmm. or that it says something maybe about the studio system or the lack of filmmakers like the Vietnam War that so many great directors made their films about, what a folly and failure that war is. Where are necessarily those directors making the films about that second Gulf War failure.
0: So, um, yeah, like, I, I like to put people on the spot, uh, Lee. And can you can you give us a synopsis of what this film is about?
1: Yeah. So following the end of the Gulf War, it's technically it's even a film about the Gulf War. We're <laughs> we're in the post-Gulf War period. A group of American soldiers, Spike Jones, Ice Cube, George Clooney, and Spike the aforementioned Spike Jones, come across a secret map. Um, which has a bunker where the, all this Iraqis, where the Iraqis have hidden like Kuwaiti gold. So they decide we are going to go take that gold. But along the way, they discover that getting the gold is more complicated. And is it actually better to save lives and do the right thing than get rich uh, quickly in the desert? And hu- hilarity and hijinks ensue.
0: Well, that, that is that final line you gave is obviously, like, we've talked about the, the downness and the, the kind of horrors of war, but this film is really fucking fun, right?
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, it's such a, a hoot and so on, and, like, it has a really powerful message and everything like that, but you don't put someone like Spike Jones in the character he is, Ice Cube, even George Clooney at the time, where, he, you know, he's sort of still transitioning from that sort of TV actor, Batman flop, you know, he's he's quite loose and charming in it. Everyone is, you know, you don't put Ice Cube in a film and don't have him be slightly... Different. like, four great comedic actors. Even Mark Wahlberg, intentionally or not, is always someone that's very, very funny. And you can never tell if he's funny or just a bit of an idiot and sort of a, maybe a bit thick and that he just naturally just... You laugh at him as opposed to maybe with him sometimes. Sometimes you think The departed, you're laughing with him other films you're like mm, yeah this guy's at the brightest but you know he <laughs> plays that kind of role very well
0: so i i don't tend to get into like casting what ifs and but like we'll get into george clooney in a sec but before we do i wanted to talk about the fact that david o russell wanted five other people before he got to george clooney and just like i'll rattle them off and if there's any you want to kind of particularly talk about we'll, we'll dive Sorry, into getting
1: that. into my mind temple yeah i'm yeah, thinking. It,
0: so we've got we've got Clint Eastwood, Mel Gibson, Nicolas Cage, Jack Nicholson and Dustin Hoffman all turned down the role as uh, major gates. What what is, is a very 90s list. Yeah, what like who in that list obviously there's one that really stands out to me but uh Yeah, yeah, yeah. That would have like, I but I, I feel like all of those names would have made this film completely different, right?
1: Yeah, I me I, would have be been interested to see sort of Jack Nicholson in that role. I know, I think I know who you would pick, um, <laughs> and you would still be able to discuss this film on the podcast. <laughs> Spike Jones even did make it, but yeah, it's one of those things like I, you can't kind of imagine anyone but Clooney. And even at the time, I was very much aware of, of Clooney's reputation. I mean, I was a young kid that loved the 60s Batman and loved Batman and Robin, uh-huh. and um, I thought at the time, you know you were aware the film was a bit of a flop and this guy was going to have to rehabilitate his career and he was basically this TV actor that had gone onto this film and it was a disaster. You were aware at the time of like Three Kings and films like Out of Sight being like so important to George Clooney's brand and becoming the actor he is just now. And I almost think if he wasn't casting both of those films he wouldn't have followed that through into the 2000s a growing and more successful director he would have been probably lumped as the batman flop and you know maybe returned to something like tv i
0: i think what's like really great about george clooney in this film is like he just i know it's said a lot but he just oozes this charisma and i think that's what Mm. this film needs like i don't know i think dustin hoffman would have brought like I don't think he's he's got that. He's kind of he 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 tends to play more awkward people and Jack Nicholson's angry. Nicholas Cage. Who the fuck knows where that could have gone? Do you know what I mean, he could have, especially around this time. He could he could have he could have potentially got got something similar. I don't know, but he, he doesn't have the kind of like wi- like women want to be with him and men want to be him like charm that George Clooney has. Um so yeah, what do you think of George Clooney in this role and like how he kind of deals with the material?
1: I think he's he's good because you would go for or you would join him in the trenches, wouldn't you? As he's talked about, he's someone that's got that charisma, that charm. He's one of those people like you're he's obviously this guy that's about to punch out of of being at war um, and you know leave the the army. And maybe with some of the other actors, you can imagine them having that bit more wrinkles on their face, a bit more time in war. They probably would have gone to Korea or maybe even Vietnam. With George Clooney, you sort of get that impression that he's someone that's been sort of dealing with the Cold War, the frustration of that, and this kind of war. And he's just, he's done with it. He's ready to kind of go out. And I kind of, you watch that and you go, I would follow him to go find gold in a QA <laughs> and then sort of an Iraq bunker. Like, yeah, I could believe that. And then um, I think you need that as an audience because it feels stupid that these people would head out into the desert on a folly
0: like that, you yeah. know, and George Clooney
1: makes you believe that you could do that.
0: I love I love the way we get introduced to the characters in this film in, in the, the kind of things they're doing or, and specifically the super 90s like typing on screen of who everyone is and kind of what they're like what their role is almost and that that scene we get introduced to george clooney's character of him uh, shagging judy greer kind of in the the like i don't know what is it like multimedia like center they have set up in the desert and stuff like that you kind of know what kind of guy he is from that right i think that's what's really clever about it you kind of know like he's 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 fed up with all of this he kind of wants to Mm -hmm. to move on to the next thing and he's also like i don't know yeah he's got that he's got that charm and he's kind of he 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 is the kind of guy who as dumb as this idea is you're you're gonna go yeah cool 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 gates like let's let's get to it yeah absolutely as i say i would have i would
1: have joined him i would have been the, the fifth member of that
0: team what what do you make because obviously it's it's interesting because the film kind of like opens up and we're first introduced to troy and comrade who respectively played by mark Wahlberg and spike jones and like you kind of i I, I don't know about you but for that first like five minutes or so you're not sure like where the film is going to go right because obviously we're 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 shown we're shown it's the end of the gulf war so it's like Okay, I thought this was going to be a war movie. Like, what's going to happen, right?
1: I always think about some films that I think, and I think something was it called Fury, for example. That I think there's some, there's almost this untapped um, potential in films about that post-war period, about uh-huh. reconstruction, or what happens afterwards. Because as we've seen from from recent events, you, there's no clean exit from war, and it, there's sometimes when you think you've left you potentially really haven't. And there's a lot of drama that can come from that and decision-making. Um, and I think, you know, something like Fury, I really enjoyed that because it's we're so used to this, the same old stories about war, but sometimes it's an to go, but well, what happened next that wasn't just signing a, a peace treaty or, or a yeah, deal yeah. and so on? And I think a movie like this shows that that conflict still went on, that there was huge consequences to, you know, George Bush's like, we want you to rise up and take on the Iraqis, eh, sort yourself out. And again, yeah. history has repeated itself, and it's just so damning. So I, I think it's it, there's, it's it's a film that is very rare in being this post-war movie that shows there is no sort of clean ending to that. And I think uh, when I watched it back, I I remembered it being a war movie, but then I as I settled into, it, I thought, oh no, no, it's that post-war movie, and it's all the more exciting for that.
0: Yeah, and I think what's really great about that to that point is that it gets both like tension out of it and also like some really great laughs. Do you know what I mean? Like kind of thing of like there's there's that moment we get when they're they're like planning what they're gonna do to kind of take over this bunker and they they go to like test it out on a cow. Like this is how you're gonna attack it and it mm-hmm. blows up and then when they turn up to the town, obviously like the the Iraqi people are like kind of looking at them going, they're madmen. Look at them. They're covered in the, the blood of their enemies. Like, they, like we can't trust them. And obviously, we kind of know them as the audiences. Like, for all intents and purposes, just, just four bumbling idiots, really, aren't they? Just kind of looking for this this quick buck before they go home.
1: I think there's something as well that I really like about those type of movies where you talk about it's the end of the war and there's almost this tension that you buy into it where you start to think, it's almost like that cop that's like, I'm too old for this shit yeah. <laughs> and goes on that last mission. Like you almost feel like if they're at war, there's a tension built in, but there's something about it in your head where you feel like you are so close. You're not in the middle of a war. You're not on the, f- the front line at the moment, or you know, in the middle of about to be a great battle or a Dunkirk or whatever. These are people that like, you're almost as an audience member, you're screaming at them going, is it worth getting the gold? Like go home, go back to your family. Get out, save yourselves, because they've they've made it through this thing. And there's I've always find that tension of like, oh don't it's like going back into the house when you you know, for that you think you survived, you've ran away from the killer, you're going back in, and you're just like, oh no, someone is gonna get there. <laughs> and even though you could die anytime in the war, there's just something about it where it's more scary after the fact, I think.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. So um let's talk about some of the other cast members before we get on to Spike Jones and his role. What do you make of Ice Cube in this film? Yeah, I, I think he's good. I had a feeling he was in it more. I think it's because of the fact that he was one of the characters
1: on the front of the DVD cover. I think, was it George Clooney, Mark Wahlberg, and um, Ice Cube were on the cover? I don't think, was Spike Jones on it? I can't remember. But... Oh, yes. um, <laughs> but i i almost just remember thinking like he would be in it more and um, which was a bit disappointing kind of going back and watching it cuz i think he's a really good comedic actor and he, he certainly proved his chops over the years and um, so i was a little bit surprised how little elgin was in the film yeah yeah yeah
0: and he gets these kind of like he he gets some great moments whether it's like i i love the i love the flashback sequences we get and just that physical acting of like you just kind of get a glimpse into who who he is straight away, just like throwing that luggage onto the conveyor belt as a baggage handler, yeah. and it's like like when he's when they're asked like, "Well, do you want to just go back to your old lives?" and it's kind of his is his is that I think Mark Wahlberg's is like what is it like a printer cartridge like blowing up on him or yeah. something like that, and then we get uh, introduced to, like a glimpse of Spike Jones's character as this kind of like i don't know like joe dirt looking hillbilly just shooting cans in a mm. in a kind of like yeah. vacant lot or something because you forget about things like that i mean i i mean my knowledge of
1: american military is just so broad in scope that when i remembered when i rewatched this and when i think about it i was like these people that were basically office workers were kind of drafted in a way yeah i know that they were on maybe a reserve list etc but That surprised me that in that day and age, in that war, they were still having to kind of go down that route for sending people off to war. And that was sort of surprising. I kind of just had remembered them as sort of regular Army Joes and not these people that had lives or baggage handlers or, you know, civilian operators and stuff like that. I I was really surprised by that and the fact that they would go. And that feels very, very American. I couldn't imagine that being something we would do here in the the uk us getting called up from our jobs to go fight in um, afghanistan
0: yeah they, they are on the reserves aren't they as well that's what, like because yeah. i think i think that's a big part of it right is like that's what that's what mark Wahlberg um says at one point so one of the things i really wanted to delve into um but again before we get to Spike james is what do you think of the look of this film because my dvd i'm not sure how you watch this but like mm. it came with a disclaimer that said like the, the like something along the lines of like this film like the color has been done in a certain way to for, for an effect like there is nothing wrong with your tv which like i'm not sure if it is just because a an old i don't know i'm not sure if it when it came out on that clip case there were people going there's something wrong with this film but like yeah what yeah. do you make of the kind of aesthetic <sighs>
1: I'm glad um I wasn't the only one. I rented it. Um and I was watching on my laptop and I was like, huh. It felt a little oversaturated. Um mm-hmm. it was maybe that period where like you could put film into sort of like a computer essentially and manipulate it on such a grand level that you couldn't really before. And it was maybe one of those ones they had kind of got ahead of themselves a little bit in terms of <laughs> how you should do that. I think we've we've got a little bit better, cinematography has got much better at that, but I could imagine at the time being something like because you look at it and it feels like it was obviously shot on film, but you watch it and you think like, God, that has gone through some sort of like dust or there's something on it. It's probably just been been filtered by the cinematography. And I I didn't think it looked good personally. <laughs> I, I don't know what it would have been like in the cinema, but I also had that same issue. I was like, hmm, this doesn't look this just doesn't feel kind of kind of right. It just felt like the volume levels on the saturation had just been turned up a little too high.
0: What I, one of the things I kind of I don't know, like as much as like it's slightly off-putting, there there is an element to it that kind of like you can you can understand why it's going for it, and obviously like puts it over or, or very much time stamps, like when it was made, like that kind of it feels very like nineteen ninety nine, like that because it's yeah. like I don't know, I don't know how to just it's, it it like the film looks dusty. I think you said like when it kind of like looks like it's kind of been like. Because I don't, it's just got this grain to it, right? The, and then it's yeah. got this saturation, and it is all kind of. I think the way the way the way I would explain it is, it looks like it's filmed on a fisheye lens when it's not. Almost, do you know what yeah. I mean? It's kind of got that feeling to it.
1: I was kind of, I'm reading it here, I've got got a note where, um, much to Warner Brothers' annoyance, no surprise there, um, there was kind of experimental techniques used. So, obviously the film was, was shot on um, a sort of ectochrome transparency stock that was cross-processed in colour negative chemicals to reproduce the, quote, the odd colour of the newspaper images of the Gulf War wasted on me though the process produced a unique quality and look to the film that's a way to put it it was exceedingly unreliable to develop and many film labs would not provide insurance for the transparency stock and um, if it did not develop properly russell feared that scenes would need to be reshot until finally a lab had found de- had, that would develop the transparency stock to the negative chemicals so the opening shot of the uh, um is on, is on controversial negative stock and bleach bypass to give a deep black and high contrast look. And some interior shots were also filmed on conventional negative stock and processed normally. Russell also credited the realism of the firefight. That blah blah blah. Um, so yeah a lot of odd techniques and a hell of a gamble for (laughs) an indie director and you wouldn't get away with that these days you know there's a 50 million dollar war movie in the hands of an indie kid you wouldn't imagine them getting away with something like that obviously with, with digital it makes it a little bit easier to play with with things like that but you know imagine if they had to reshoot that film like it would have been you know double the budget and it would have just scraped by but that's quite impressive, really, that he could could get away with that, and he could beat Warner Brothers down like that.
0: Yeah, for for kind of like how it's aged, like and how it looks now. I'm not, I haven't, I haven't watched it on like well, it was just a DVD. I'm not sure how it looks on like 4K mm. or anything like that. Even it, even if it's had a 4K release, but like, I kind of got you got to give it to them for taking that kind yeah. of gamble. Do you know what I mean? And it, and it very much is that thing of we're gonna make. We, we want to stand out right we want to make a film that is mm-hmm. going to like be quite polarizing about this as much as it's set in the post uh war era it's it's very much speaking directly to what that whole war is about and there, there's obviously there's moments in it they're on a they're on a they're on a mission to find gold uh obviously like and then there's that very big moment when um Mark Wahlberg is being interrogated by a uh, brilliant, f- like French actor. Where is his name? Uh, if you know it, Lee, please do jump in. Yeah, uh, my mind is drawn a blank. I always just think of
1: him as the CD guy.
0: Yes, uh, Saeed uh, Tagamori, who was in Lehane, I think was the first film i remember seeing him in and like really like stood out to me the brilliant french film but like when he pours the oil into his mouth and he delivers that line like like this is this this is like the reason you're here like this is yeah this is the reason you're here not like the kind of keeping the peace like they've been fed by george bush yeah so <laughs> let's talk about spike jones what do you make of spike jones in this film Lee?
1: so funny isn't he um i completely <laughs> forgot what his performance was going to be like so it was a pleasant surprise where he plays the bumbling village idiot um, and and he plays it so well doesn't he Um i thought he would be in it more um but yeah i i enjoyed this one quite a lot from spike jones i think he has got great comedic timing and i think even as a director you see that in a lot of his films where he can bring out in people like saint nicholas cage in adaptation just the slightly odd humorous style of people like it's just always slightly awkward slightly weird with this it's a little bit broad than the sort of niche comedy i almost associate with him and his kind of style probably as a director
0: so yeah like some of the like moments we 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 get with him like he kind of like the that i like the i I wish we'd got more of it as well the interplay we get between him and ice cube there's that great scene when they're riding in the car kind of arguing about what to listen to and like he's kind of going hey man we gotta listen to leonard skinner and he's like and uh (laughs) ice cubes very much no we gotta listen to like uh chill out anthems and stuff like or like kind of easy listening anthems and stuff like that And i think i think that stuff's great and he like as much as he's not on screen he he even gets like he gets this great little arc to his character in that kind of like he 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 starts off just very much in the shadow of Mark Wahlberg's Troy and kind of like is very much like the the stereotypical like person you would imagine being in that war where it's like even even when they kind of team up with the kind of rebels as it were like to to take on this kind of final bunker he's still just saying like when he's asked questions about oh does he want to just kill as many Arabs as possible? He's like, yeah, man, that's what we're trained for and stuff like that. And it's like, and you've got Ice Cube again, that kind of great uh, comedy interplay where he's like telling him like, he's like, don't listen to him. Like he's he's a redneck. He, he doesn't know what he's talking about.
1: I'm thinking about his butt cheek in
0: my head still.
1: Like, um, <laughs> yeah, like with the math in there, it's like, oh gosh, like it's just so kind of crass as, as well as you see, it's sort of like that. Reputation of that village idiot that's gone off to war and god knows how they've kind of got there but they're there and it's as much a kind of fun escape as it is a duty to serve almost
0: what i love about it is he's not the dumbest character we get in this film either that 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 honor goes to um jamie kennedy right <laughs> yes <laughs> so um is there any particular scenes in this that you think like really stand out to you and that you'd really like to shine a light upon
1: yeah I think for me it's the the torture scene with with Mark Wahlberg that you kind of alluded to with like the you know I've never seen a CD used that way to you know as they're putting oil down it where it's one of these ones where we see it so many times and that people will say we're going to war for this very specific reason it's noble and just but we can see through it, you know, like, why did we go into certain places? It was to chase oil, you know, and, um, you know, the fact that he's, he's shining a light on that and that people almost, we in the West are so quick to talk about China and the Middle East or maybe religious people as they all brainwashed. What are they doing? You know, they're fighting for a cause that doesn't exist. Can't they see the light? And the amount of times, resources, money and lives wasted that of American soldiers that have been sent off to war to kind of do something like that, that they think they're doing something righteous, when in reality, they're there to help with oil and exports and things like that. And it's so transparent. And it's interesting to see that shown on to someone like Mark Wahlberg, where you think of people that like Mark Wahlberg, and I like Mark but he has this, he probably almost has that attraction to a lot of people of the working Joe, blue collar guy that will go see him in any sort of film and his his comedies, whether it's Daddy's Home or Transformers or The Departed. People love him and his daft TV show and his show about um, his family business doing burgers and stuff like that. You know, he isn't, he's respected by a lot of people, but his following is perhaps the sort of people that would maybe go to war or to sign up for things like that. Yes. You know the message in this film is so strong and it was ignored by so many people that in the years that followed for almost two decades plus went off to war for these exact same reasons that were maybe targeted behind keeping the homeland safe or getting weapons of mass destruction or we're going to save the kuwaiti or whoever like the lessons of this film went over people's head and that scene, is it's literally shoving it down the throat of our lead character and our audience member, having time passed since the end of that Gulf War. And no one heeded that lesson. A lot of people did not heed that lesson of Three Kings and lost their lives because of it or were sent off for to you know, die a pointless death in the desert, really, is, is my feeling.
0: I think what's really interesting about that is it kind of like begs the question of... like. What is the way to kind of get that message across in film? Do you know what I mean? Like, there is, a, there is always, I think, like an argument for kind of like, uh, like wrapping some, like a, a a serious message up in something like quote unquote fun. Do you know what I mean? Like, because, like, in a way, like having someone like Mark Wahlberg and Ice Cube, you can see, like, the, you can see this film's intention because it's like, not only are we trying to, like, like by putting it in this yeah packaging of something that is like an action adventure film and a comedy we've got a lot to say and like mm-hmm. like you said it's a real shame that that kind of like fell on deaf ears and i think like a film that kind of like in, in recent years that really tackles like a, a big subject but does it in a way and it feels weird to almost call it fun like something like promising young woman where it's like it, yeah. it it has this kind of do you know what i mean it, it has a a fun element to it but tackle something that is like an epidemic like in, in regards to like um sexual abuse and stuff like that and it's like it's it's i think it's more a cultural thing right it's like in 1999 i don't think people were ready for for that in their in their popcorn almost do you know what I mean like i think the, the cultural and like consciousness oh yeah Consciousness has kind of expanded, where people uh, will, will take will will take that kind of medicine with 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 their sugar.
1: And it's maybe one of those things. You think back to 1999. You know, the the well for film discussion was much more small and limited. You had mm-hmm. your key critics. You had maybe your Siskel and Eberts. You had your top critics. It was one of those things. Like films were reviewed, and then they sort of went into to the world. And you know, I I can't really speak to 1999 because I was seeing films like Star Wars at the time <laughs> or a new James Bond film. I was I was too young to be seen much more else than that in the cinema. Um, but you think of something like Promising Young Woman, you can watch it at home. You can go see it in the you well, obviously didn't get a release in the cinema in the end, but you watch a film like that and you can have a conversation afterwards about the meaning behind it, dive into it, discuss it. Something like Three Kings, the it's not. I've never really seen it on streaming services much. I know it's on like Sky Movies. It's one of these movies that its message was certainly timely at the time, or a warning, or and a reflection on it. But there wasn't maybe those conversations where people are like diving into or think pieces afterwards, or how many podcasts do you see chatting about Three Kings or Three Kings one minute at a time, or <laughs> you know, the, the legacy of Three Kings twenty years ago when people talk about nineteen ninety nine. There's The Matrix, there's um, Magnolia, there's Star Wars, there's a load of different films, but no one talks necessarily about this one. So it just kind of seems to have just got lost and that message that it said hasn't really got out perhaps into the wider world or or been discussed or reflected on or ultimately we're in a partisan time where people will, will go to war anyway for, for it and the people that would look at that and go, well, America is actually the villain in it. Um, you know, and his behaviour, you know, these people are outliers, really, in the grand scheme of things, why not um, why America should perhaps be looked down upon, and again you wouldn't necessarily get a film like this where America's the villain, um, you know, for a, a 50 million um, <laughs> dollar Warner Brothers movie off to the to the cinemas
0: Yeah, and I, I think, like I don't know, like, I'm kind of glad that this podcast, however many people listen or whatever, like it's shining a light on this film somewhat because, like you mentioned earlier, it's, it's like, unfortunately, it's still, like, the, the message is still prescient. Whether it is, like, that war was bad, like, the kind of ongoing involvement both the US and the UK have played in the Middle East and, like, especially, like, Afghanistan and Iraq and stuff like that. And it's, like you said, there's... there's the ending of this film is basically... Been happening over the last few months in the kind of exit of Afghanistan that we saw, and it's I don't know, uh, yeah, I I, I I I I don't know. Uh, maybe with an upcoming David O. Russell film, people will you'll start to uh, you'll see you'll see these people going. You know what is a uh, an underrated David O. Russell film that we don't talk about is Free Kings. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah, I, I'd love to see that happen.
0: <laughs> so, um let's like we've kind of alluded to that ending so like what like do you think that the what like yeah what do you think the kind of ending tells us almost and like what what do you think it's like the the grand obviously you've gone into some of the messaging of this film but what do you think that ending really tells us about uh, 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 about america or just 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 what david o russell was trying to tell us
1: I think it's one of those ones I almost think of that meme of like the Mitchell and Webb show of like, are we the baddies where it's one of those ones like, I always go back to that line when when I was watching it, where it was like, George Bush said that we should rise up as Kuwaitis and fight back and you're not protecting us like they've essentially just created chaos for the sake of it like a war very much under false pretense so we've got to help the Kuwaitis we've got to do this and you just see at the end where they have a chance to save some refugees which is the most simple act that you can ask of of a nation of soldiers of anyone is to make sure people are are safe and especially in a position where they're again they're so close to having their lives saved, and you have these American officers looking to stop that, um, and they almost have to be bribed to kind of let it happen. And yeah. you know the fact that they get court-martialed, and it's only because of this like news story in the end that th- it gets out there. And um, the amount of things that have gone on over the years, and we've heard about so many horrific, you know, acts of war that have been done, or horrible acts that have been done upon to, to innocent people, or refugees, or prisoners of war. And you watch something like this and you go, these are sometimes the stories, this could have been a story that we didn't hear about, these great people that were almost condemned to death that we asked to go and fight on our behalf and to do something good and we would protect them and we were going to let them them die because we were done with the the war and so on and you know, thank God that there was that news story there to to shine a a light on or else they would have been, you know, they would have been court-martialed and probably sentenced to military prison and their lives would have been ruined. They wouldn't have been reunited with, you know, family members and and young kids, for example. These people did the right thing. And that's all we should ever ask of, of people, especially in a crisis like that, especially one of our our own making. And you see that over the years again, how many times have we turned our back on people whose lives and lands we bombed and destroyed. And I think David O Russell is really shining a light on America. Ain't ain't that great. And as you say, similar to the Vietnam Wars, you know, none of those films really try and romanticize that involvement. Mm -hmm. It's, it's a a shame and a disgrace.
0: What, what I I keep thinking about, about the ending of this is if they don't have that bargaining chip of the gold bullion, Hmm then those people would have died and it like it very like it very much comes to the kind of like the money that flows through the um like military industrial complex and stuff Mm -hmm. like that and it's it's that that kind of changes the um opinions of the officers and stuff like that to to let them go and throughout the film what i find is quite interesting as well is we even our kind of heroes like you still see traits of that kind of I don't know gray areas in their character. Like, there's that whole scene where they're trying to like rouse up like the Q80s to kind of jo- to, to to join them. And I think they're like, like there's a scene where like they're going, "Oh, George Bush needs you" and stuff like that. And they're mm-hmm. they're still try they're still doing a bit of that. And I think um, Gates gets called out as well by um, uh, Cliff Curtis's character, and he's like, "Well, all you really want to do is come here and still still the goal do you know what i mean and it's like you, you you don't actually care about us and it's kind of like you get that great um great i'd like something mark Wahlberg. as much as like uh he's done some terrible things in his past like and, and like like love him or hate him or whatever like he de- he delivers a really great scene in this when he's eventually kind of like Freed by Gates, he like spare like what what is interesting. He spares the guy who's tortured him, Mm -hmm. and then he has that exchange with Ice Cube where like like I think Ice Cube mentions like uh that's going to be a tough task to try and get all these people over the border. And he says to him like, Mm -hmm. "Well, do you want to go around? It's your job to go around and tell everyone like we can't take you. We can't take you like." like we're going to just have we to have to leave some people behind it's like very quickly you just get the okay yeah i get it yeah we're gonna we're gonna have to get all of these people across the border because that that's what that's what really matters and it's i don't know yeah and sorry i'm rambling here but to your point of um the media i really wanted to like talk about that because that's another thing that makes this film so prescient right that kind of like we're living in this like whether it's uh film the police kind of age or kind of like do you know I mean if there's injustices you you, you can just pull out a, a camera phone and like you can you can film it and shine a light on what is what is going wrong and it's i think like i think yeah this film definitely does need to be revisited revised and kind of like i think whether it's the gulf war or kind of other things like the the tragedy of like uh george floyd's death and stuff like that like That kind of thing, like, would we have seen justice in that case, like, if it wasn't for somebody filming it? Do you know what I mean? Like, it's kind of like the media and like reporting is now in the hands of the people. And I think, like, yeah, yeah, that was said in this film, what, like, twenty two years ago, whatever it was.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and I'm I'm listening to you talk, and I'm almost almost imagine replacing with Q eight with like afghan airports and things like that yeah. and we're just gonna have to leave you behind sorry and it, it is just so so tragic and you know it will happen again and again and you know america may not be at war now but they will find a reason or excuse to be at war with someone somewhere someday and you know it, who knows what will happen
0: <laughs> <laughs> well before 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 we kind of um yeah wrap up talking about the film uh, one of the things i wanted to to kind of just touch on is we get these kind of great cutaway scenes throughout the film, whether it's the kind of like uh, depiction of what would happen if you were shot and the kind of thing of sepsis when Mark Wahlberg's shot and we get the interiors of his body when he's tortured and we get those like great moment. well, not great, but like those kind of – well, yeah, filmically they're great of like um, these – sometimes brutal flashes of either things that happened or could happen and whilst watching this it kind of reminded me that, that david o russell almost like created the template for what um adam mckay's doing now like that kind mm, of like yeah. that 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 genre of filmmaking this very much feels like the the touch point for that right do you know what i mean like that yeah. that pitch black comedy with a harsh political message
1: yeah i mean i know adam mckay has got his detractors but i'm a, I'm a big fan I, I loved big short vice i can't wait to see um his his new one what's it called again um
0: so like this way up or something like that or like, yeah
1: um look up or look something up. Yeah, like yeah. that um I, and it's just one of those messages where it's like i suppose sometimes the problem with adam mckay movies is they are they're appealing to a converted audience, so <laughs> yeah in a way. It's not like he's brought along the audiences of the Step Brothers and stuff like that. People that are watching Vice or his next movie about this meteor strike, about how idiotic politicians are. We already know that message, and <laughs> how many people are going to change their tune or realize, oh, yeah, no, I, I got something wrong with there. But no, I, I definitely see see that connection, and you know, I can almost imagine someone like Anna McKay being being inspired by that work for,
0: for sure. Amazing. So, um. Yeah, a couple of questions I wanted to ask you before we we wrap mm-hmm. this up is, uh, how do you think this like fits within the the war movie genre?
1: It's not a genre that I'm too too strong on. Um, it's never been something I I particularly seek out or something like that. But mm-hmm. I think, as I kind of maybe uh, touched on earlier, I like that it's a post war. Movie, you know, what happens when you've made the decision to leave and the fallout from that, that war doesn't end just because you agree a peace treaty or something like that. There is still a lot of mess that's been there. You know, people are often save it, staying there in sort of peacekeeper roles or providing a sort of military overview. And I, I find that quite interesting. That is a, a rare genre in itself about that post war period and how we, we kind of navigate that. And maybe the people that are left behind whose feelings are going to be drastically hurt by going look what you've done to our lives, and now you're pissing off back
0: to to America. Definitely. And uh, the other thing I wanted to talk about as well is I mentioned at the beginning that this is a part of the Essential War collection released by Warner Brothers, which also includes The Battle of the Bulge, Escape to Victory, Full Metal Jacket, Kelly's Heroes, Memphis Belle, The Dirty Dozen, and Where Eagles Dead. I'm not sure if you've seen... All or I've seen films. Full
1: Metal Jacket I'm pretty sure if I asked my uh, late grandfather I think he would have had most of those on a VHS collection or probably <laughs> fell asleep to the most on a Sunday afternoon yeah I, I can just picture that DVD set perfectly just being on the shelf of virgin megastore um and yeah the only one i ever picked up. i think i picked up the full metal jacket edition and the other one but the others felt like too old and antiquated i was wanting to see like what's the hip indie movies or like the otters you know your stanley kubrick so yeah I, i've not seen the other ones
0: well i I've, i think that like yeah like full metal jacket was the one that jumped out to me and this like you can see that lineage from full metal like full metal i I think the lineage of of films that kind of go into uh this is i can i can see apocalypse now somewhat like because that's kind of got that like i don't know like uh, where apocalypse now is kind of almost like psychedelic in the way that it kind of Mm -hmm. like shows the vietnam war and stuff like that and it kind of feels like david o russell is doing like the 90s equivalents of that so what would that be like the ecstasy version with these kind of cutaways and this kind of bright imagery and stuff like that and I think there is this full metal jacket aspect to it is very much coming from that that angle of the kind of like we done fucked up do you know what I mean like America haven't done good in this war
1: yeah and then two years later back there and it's almost a really why <laughs> that film has sort of fallen maybe through the cracks like the vietnam war world wars they're almost in a defined period of time of this happened yes whereas by the time sort of america reflected on that period of time or had movies to say about the gulf war it was back into the the middle east again and new stories had to be told new lessons had to be learned again etc and it almost became one of those things of like not really anyone talks about Gulf War 1 because it was just played out on the, the TV. That yes. seems to be how people describe it, of like the first war on TV, you know, and cable TV, etc. And then, you know, we spent 20 years in there and it's almost like the stories that are now going to be told in the coming years and months are going to be about the people that were involved in that. Definitely.
0: Um, so as we wrap things up, I always like to see if there's any of connections in this film. Mm. Are there people who worked... In on, on screen or behind the camera, who have worked with the Coppola family somewhere else down the line? Did you manage to find yeah. any, Lee?
1: Yeah, the one that stood out from my head. Um, I've had such a busy day at work. I would have like loved to dedicate <laughs> hours and hours to coming up with the most obscure ones. But I'm going to go with one that would be like if this was like the pointless TV show most people would get, but obviously George Clooney was in um, Fantastic Mr. Fox from Wes Anderson that also starred Jason Schwartzman, so there's the the easy tap-in choice.
0: Perfect, I'll I'll, 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 uh, see that and I'll raise you a George Clooney uh, in a cameo performance in A Very Murray Christmas which was directed by Sofia Coppola. Um,
1: Excellent choice,
0: yes. And I'll rattle off the other ones, so we have uh, Mark Wahlberg who is in I Heart Huckabee's also directed by David O. Russell and also stars Jason Schwartzman and his mother, Talia Shire. Um, We have McKelty Williamson. I just realised that's his mum. I did not know that. My (laughs) God. You learn something new every day. See, I'm still learning. (laughs) So, yeah, we have McKelty Williamson, who I think a lot of people would know as Bubba Gump from Forrest Gump who plays Colonel Horn. Um, He is in Connor as like kind of Uh, The diabetic best friend of Cameron Poe, obviously Mm -hmm. played by Nicolas Cage. Cliff Curtis, who plays Amir in this, the kind of like um, the leader of the Q80 rebels, as it were, uh, is in Bringing Out the Dead the same year um, alongside Nicolas Cage. Saeed Tamagori is in I Heart Huckabees as well with the same connections. And wrapping it up, Judy Greer. Is in Adaptation, Jurassic World, and the 2019 remake of Valley Girl, which obviously doesn't have Nicolas Cage in it, but the original is Nicolas Cage's first starring role. And oh. wrap it up with Carter Burwell, this same year did the soundtrack score for being John Malkovich, there we go that's the co okay, so pointless <laughs> um there's probably more um if there are yeah hit me up guys let me know and i'll uh i'll, I'll go oh no i'm I'm really bad i should have I should have known that uh but um there's only so much time in, in in the world to to look these things up so let's score this film Lee and I like to do that by asking you what is your perfect wine pairing this film
1: i like wine um so i was thinking like you're in the desert so red wine would be the worst decision in the (laughs) world so you want you probably want a sparkling wine or something like that something where you can almost just picture the little droplets popping down the side of a wine bottle you can almost just parched in the desert have it and just go "Ah." so i would have to say a sparkling wine fresh out of the chiller
0: perfect perfect and it very much feels like that would be on the menu the characters in this film especially it being mm-hmm. the end the end of the war <laughs> so obviously if you're paying for that wine is it a bottom shelf middle shelf or top shelf wine aka so, is this film any good
1: i think i'm gonna say it's a middle shelf and i'm not saying that as like a negative i think you get fantastic wines for like seven eight quid um and three kings is a really good film you know i when i watched it yesterday i think i rated it like three out of five but you know it's like it's these things where you talk about it you dive into it you hear different opinions and you know i i'm, I'm certainly going to update that um rating on letterbox but i would still have it as a, a middle shelf wine but that middle shelf wine is is in go to Aldi Lidl you get great wine you know my favorite wine to to enjoy is an eight pound Sauvignon Blanc from Sainsbury's um and that is no bad thing so middle shelf and proud well yeah
0: I think there's very much like a kind of freestyle sometimes is seen as bad but it's like you that's free stars is what you're watching the most in your life and it's like Yeah, yeah yeah Do you know what I mean? Like, you you reserve the fives and maybe the fours for the masterpieces, but I very much think that, like, three is a mark of, like, it's solid. And I think, like, that is that is what Three Kings is. It's solid. It does what it does. It does what it does well. And it's, like, I don't know, like, it's in and out. Even though it's, like, close to two hours, it kind of, like, it's got enough momentum in it to just kind of yeah. keep you interested and engaged. And it's, yeah, it does, it does that great thing of Packaging a serious message within a whole lot of fun, and I've got a lot of time for it. Yeah, definitely. Cool. So let's move on to probably my favourite part of the podcast, where I ask some questions that don't really mean anything, but uh they're absolute torture for my guests, and it's it's quite fun to do. So, uh. which Coppola family member would you keep? But in doing so, you get rid of the filmographies of the entire rest of the family it's
1: a very very tough one um, and <laughs> there's one of those ones it's like i'm a huge sci-fi fan especially star trek and i've learned that if you pull one thread you inadvertently destroy time and so on so like this question has me thinking i'm going to destroy the the universe killing majority of the couple family and probably wiping out cinema but i love wes anderson films a really hell of a lot So I'm probably going to have to keep Jason Schwartzman just so I can keep most of that filmography intact. And I'm due to see the French dispatch in a couple of weeks. I just bought a ticket to the French dispatch exhibit, pop-up exhibit that's going to be in London today. So I've made an investment of time and effort in seeing this movie in the coming weeks. So I feel like that I've got to keep that alive. So I'm going to keep Jason Schwartzman alive so I can keep Rushmore and intact and so on and quite a lot of the other wes anderson films like it was just argile limited he can go but i need to keep that but i feel really bad for sophia nicholas francis you know a lot of a lot of great people have just been wiped out from existence but i'm sure you would pick nicholas cage so we kind of even
0: (laughs) i'm just gonna say with your decision you said about the the wider ramifications of it you've just said goodbye to star wars i reckon
1: I'm not fussed about Star Wars. I'm not with Star Star Wars is totally overhyped. Go away. It's gone. It's fine. Um, yes. You know, cheerio. There's too much of it. Um, you know, move on. Disney can spend $4 billion on something else. Instead. They can spend that on making like $400 million, Um, Was it $4 billion? They can make $4 billion Moonlights, for example, with that money. So I am making sure Disney invests their money in a better way.
0: Perfect. I love, uh, I've said it many times on this podcast, but I love when people's answers to that question are wholly selfish and um, I applaud you for being wholly selfish with your answer. Not quite,
1: not quite right like it's not my, that's my response everything's always objective you know <laughs> you know history will judge other things so I can only say what I like.
0: Perfect perfect um, yeah I don't know I think I think Jason Swartzman as well is making a making of a, a strong case to be kept in this as well he, I think he rivals Nicolas Cage for the most screen time with his kind of work in both film and television, because obviously, like, you've got yeah. like full seasons of shows he's in and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And you would have never have got the amazing theme song to the OC without uh, Jason Schwartzman writing it. Oh my
1: God. See, again, all, I didn't know that either. See, like, there's so much, like, if you <laughs> untangled that, you know, who would be sitting there thinking, like, channel California you know my god i I'm, I'm
0: learning so much today. yeah go, go back and i say this to you and i say it to anyone listening at home uh go back and watch the music video to that song and you see a a little fresh faced jason schwartzman sitting at the drum kit drumming along he's yeah a founding member of phantom planet everybody i, lo- I, lo- I yes love i love I, lo- I, I, I love i love showing that fact uh so um based on this film alone the, Are the Copplas the greatest film family of all time?
1: You'd probably have to say so, wouldn't you? But based Um, on this
0: film, based on this film alone. No, no. (laughs) There you go. There you go. That's uh, Spike Jones has rightfully been kicked out of the family because his contribution has not made them the greatest film family. His hairy
1: arse is just, I, I prefer more <laughs> prestige cinema. You know, I don't want to see a map between some guy's butt cheeks. No.
0: <laughs> Amazing. And um, we've talked about this film uh, quite a bit throughout the podcast, but it's possibly the most important question on the whole thing is, what does Bill Murray say to Scarlett Johansson at the end of Lost in Translation?
1: no time to die is in cinemas from tonight. Um, probably just like tell your husband how you really feel. I mean, it's one of those things that I was lucky enough to see this in the cinema when I was younger, um, a really good indie cinema up in Aberdeen um, in Scotland. And um, it was never a thing as far as I was concerned. And the same with the like ghost story, for example, where there's so much debate and discussion about what was in the you note, know, What did he say? You know, I've never been like bothered about that. Like I've accept and go, that's a lovely moment. And I just accept it on face value and it's lovely. And I don't need an answer. Or if I was in their company, I wouldn't waste my time almost asking them because you just know they're always going to turn around and say, No. And so it's never been an issue for me. I leave that for other people, but I think it would just be something like tell them how they feel. And I wouldn't want to know if if there was like an expose or Bill Murray decided on his deathbed to reveal the answer.
0: Yeah, I think there's been a whole thing where people have like got lip readers involved, like try to figure it out and stuff like that. And it's, uh, uh, I I just like it as an end to this podcast because it's open to interpretation and kind of, it's a chance for people to make uh, a joke a lot of the time Whether a uh, (laughs) popular one at the moment is um, Sue Disney for or whatever whatever you can get oh yes and hail hydra for that long period of time oh that's the that's amazing hail hydra that's a good one i love it i love it um well lee thank you so much for coming and making some coppola connections with me
1: oh it's been an absolute pleasure i've made so many coppola connections during this as well and i i'm my mind is is blowing it's a good way to to leave a, a podcast
0: well yeah before i do let you go as well um sell your wares like plug your podcast what how can people keep up to date with what you're doing over on uh the a24 project or anything else you're doing
1: yeah you can find me on filibuster and which is a general sort of film and culture podcast that we've got we've got the a24 project which is probably like almost like a spiritual cousin to the type of show that you guys do here where we've gone through the entire filmography of a24 by and large to date Um, And we interview people uh, along the way, um, you know, about what it's like to work on these projects, their film stories, much like you guys, well, you did, um, (laughs) there's no guys here, and that you did with something like Pig, for example, and and getting people on the way to, what's it like to work on these projects and with these people, you know, we've, we've had like David Lowry on, Bo Burnham, Millie Shapiro, you know, loads and loads of guests over the years. Um, and we we always feel really lucky with the people that we're able to get. So you know, check us check us out there, and um, yeah, and we've ho- we've had uh, we've
0: yeah, it, they're they're good shows. I think I'm quite it's, proud of them. It's a fantastic podcast. I recently um, watched. Uh, Zola and was like is just- so good I've got an interview dropping on Monday with a guy this
1: is like this is why we're almost spiritual podcast cousins I've got an interview coming out on Monday with a guy who's in one scene in Zola where he's the first guy to come up to the hotel suite and have sex with her um, and we he has got this fantastic story and basically he just spends the whole podcast talking about how dope everything is um, and he swears a lot but it was so fantastic to hear what it was like for him to be in this scene and to like basically sh- his scene is having a sex team with riley keogh what's that like what's that like as an actor to try and do scenes like that um so we've got that one dropping on on the monday coming depending on when this podcast come out and we had the director as well so yeah, yeah uh, we always try and shine a light on those people that have the smaller roles in mm-hmm. something or yeah. you might blink and miss them but what's their story and journey to films like that and i always think that's why i quite enjoy a couple of connections where it's like oh that person's in that let's <laughs> dive into it let's really you know I've had one or two guests somewhere where they've had like oh I don't really I was only in a small scene I, I might not have much to say but sometimes those are the best podcasts where you can just really dive into someone's journey and what it was like to just be a day player on an, a, a Nicolas Cage movie or an A24 film and what what's that like for them in life afterwards
0: yeah I recently interviewed um, Sky Elabar who's most known for being in uh the greasy strangler but oh I, yes I, I i got approached by him he just dm'd me once um on twitter and said hey man i i did um i did four commercials with roman coppola so like Next. my my like that kind of thing excites me more than going like going after i don't know speaking to Sophia coppola almost almost or yeah. or actually one of the members of the family i'm like this is like, this is, this is weird. People are kind yeah. of, people listening at home will be like, why the, like, has he broken the rules? Why has he got yeah. Sky Elaborate?" on? And then you listen to the podcast and go, Jesus Christ. Because like, none of that, like, adverts aren't listed on IMDb or anything. Yeah. Well, they've got their own kind of weird, uh <laughs> like, commercials imdb and stuff like that but like
1: and it's always about these things i think when you have like a, a platform it should be about shining the lights on that like it would be so easy to do a podcast where you're like you have all these big names and you can get them sometimes but it's always <laughs> like those those people where you watch a scene where you go oh they were in that scene and you come away all the richer for that experience and You shining a light on an actor that you might not have heard about or seen about but I bet they've got an exciting story to to tell about working with a director like that and you you know when when you get guests like that they're coming on for the love of of film and conversations and the work that you've done they're not coming on for payment or anything like that and that's that's what podcasting should be about
0: amazing well yeah back to my original point what I wanted to say when I saw Zola was that makes the A24 project so special is I was just itching to speak to somebody about about mm-hmm. that film and lit like and kind of like my interpretations and just kind of like my feelings about it. And I I, I sated that feeling by listening to your podcast and kind of uh, oh, that's great. Getting yeah, getting uh, to hear like interviews with the director and stuff like that. So yeah, from me, man, you, you guys are doing some fantastic work. And and uh, right back at you, <laughs> mate, you mate, and the, mate. the breadcrumbs
1: collector are smashing it.
0: <laughs> May the A twenty four uh i don't know may they reign supreme forever so you guys continue doing what you're doing again and likewise of the copulas keep (laughs) (laughs) breeding. thank you so much lee again thanks for coming and making some copula connections with me anytime Again, a massive thank you to Lee Hutchison for coming and joining me for this episode and uh, answering the question, are the Coppola's the greatest film family of all time? Thank you very much for listening. It always really, 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 really means the world to me that people are listening. Uh, And if you are listening, let me know. I, I, I do like to know that you're out there sometimes i i i get paranoid and feel like i'm screaming into the void so you can get in touch with the podcast on all the social media platforms twitter instagram facebook and letterbox all at caged in pod or if you want to i don't know declare your love for me you can always uh hit me up on an email you want to send something private you want to have i don't know you want to you you think that this podcast is actually nicholas cage and you want to email me you can do at uh cagedinpod at gmail.com uh, yeah look forward look forward to interacting with you and explaining to you multiple times that i'm not nicholas cage and then you asking me how do i get in touch with nicholas cage and me going well it's a lot harder than you think i've tried and it doesn't work out how you think it's going to work out <laughs> as for next week on this show I know. As of lately, we've been kind of messing around in the the multiverse of where this podcast goes and what it does. In revolving, is it a Nicolas Cage episode? Is it a Copla Connections episode? Well, next week it's kind of uh, Copla Connections to some degree. It's a bonus episode where I will be talking to Adams Nady all about the music. From Wes Anderson films because obviously on the 22nd of October we have the release of Wes Anderson's new film The French Dispatch so next Tuesday you'll be able to hear our chat where we talk about uh, Adam's top five needle drops and music cues so score cues from wes anderson films oh, it's a great chat we we kind of dart all around the place we talk about how the music interplays with the films we talk about how just kind of the music makes us feel as, as well as talking about adam's fantastic solo music project and he's kind of got a, a horse in the race in the fact that he is the band leader and creator of wes banderson a fantastic uh, six-piece band who play either the Mark Mothersbaugh and uh, Alexander Plat score music from those films. And yeah, they, they've got some live shows coming up, which we talk about all in that episode. If you'd like to chuck some money in the bucket for this podcast, you can head on right over to patreon.com forward slash cagedinpod or ko-fi.com forward slash pod and give me a little bit of your cold hard-earned cash and again it will be greatly appreciated uh over on patreon coming up in the next couple of months i'll be doing a new series uh called movie brat bros where i'll be looking at the films of uh francis ford coppola's mates so that is uh steven spielberg uh Brian De palma George Lucas, all of those guys so yeah look out for that when that uh that that comes I've, I've been a bit slack on patreon but yeah, it's gonna be like a, a new show. I'm not sure whether it's gonna be fortnightly or monthly it depends how productive I can be and juggling it between this podcast and that kind of podcast but it's gonna be fun I've got I've been speaking to some people already. And I think you're really, 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 really going to enjoy it. So, if you enjoyed this episode or any of the episodes of this podcast, please don't hesitate to head on over to Apple Podcasts, Acast, or wherever you're listening to this podcast right now and leave a beautiful five-star rating and a review. So, yeah, it's always greatly appreciated. I can't tell you how much... That is appreciated from me. So as always, guys, I have been Petros Patsyllivis, your guide through the crazy world of the Coppola family tree. Remember to keep it caged in, and I'll catch you next time. This podcast is presented by the Breadcrumbs Collective, home of the
2: Pod Charles Cinecast, Caged In Coppola Connections, a Adrooptown Limery, Maine, Franchised,
0: and many more to come.